Thank you for listening to this gospel resource from Cornerstone Baptist Church in Wiley, Texas. Feel free to use or share this resource, but we ask that you not alter the content in any way. For more information about Cornerstone Baptist Church, please visit us at cornerstonewiley.org. Well, let's open God's Word now. Revelation chapter 16 is where we're going to be this morning as we complete our study of the seven bowls of God's wrath. Revelation chapter 16, we're going to begin reading in verse 17. I'll read through the end of that particular chapter, and that's all we're going to look at today, but there's plenty for us to learn, plenty for us to see, and plenty for us to understand. And we're so thankful to the Lord that He has revealed these things to us so that we can know, so that we can allow these truths to shape our days. However long we have in this world, before those pilgrim days are gone, God wants His revelation to fuel the way we live, and give us confidence and hope and understanding. So with that in mind, let's read God's Word. If you would, just follow along in your copy of God's Word. Revelation 16 and verse 17. The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne saying, it is done. And there were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a great earthquake such as there has never been since man was on the earth. So great was that earthquake. The great city was split into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell, and God remembered Babylon the great to make her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath. And every island fled away, and no mountains were to be found, and great hailstones, about 100 pounds each, fell from heaven on people, and they cursed God for the plague of the hail, because the plague was so severe. This is God's Word. Would you pray with me before we study it any further? Father God, we thank you for your Word, and we thank you for this opportunity that we have to gather in your name and amongst your people to listen to your word, both read and sung and prayed over and preached. And I pray that you would accomplish your purpose in the hearts of your people today by encouraging us, by teaching us, and also by preparing us, perhaps even convicting us. We need all of these things. So Father, I pray that you would use me and that you would use this time to accomplish your purpose in the lives of your people. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. On Monday, our news feeds filled with images and details uh, about the devastating 7.8 magnitude earthquake that occurred across Turkey and northwest Syria. Some of you probably saw some of the early videos that came in, videos, just terrifying videos of large multi-story buildings collapsing as frightened citizens ran to try to avoid the falling debris. Countless people were trapped inside those buildings. Countless people remain trapped inside those buildings as rescue efforts are still underway, and they've been underway all week. As of this morning, the death toll between the two countries of Turkey and Syria, the death toll has surpassed 28,000 people. And there are still tens of thousands that remain lost or injured or homeless. We pray for that country, those countries, and those people. 
The most devastating earthquake in recorded history happened not too long ago. It happened in 2010, and it happened in the country of Haiti, just 15 miles from the Haitian capital of Port-au-Prince. The initial quake was somewhere in the neighborhood of a magnitude 7, and then there were two aftershocks, 5.9 and 5.0, and the official death toll from the Haitian government was that 300,000 people lost their lives in that earthquake. And 1.5 million remained homeless for up to four years after that. We saw some of that with our own eyes. We don't see many earthquakes here in Texas. Actually, earthquakes occur here in Texas. We just don't see them. We know they're happening, but nothing's moving around like in these particular cases. We're accustomed to a whole different type of deadly weather event in this particular area. And by the way, if you just moved here, welcome to the great state of Texas. We are accustomed to things like scorching heat, even brutal cold. We experienced that a few years ago. Destructive tornadoes happens with some frequency here. Deadly flooding, terrible hailstorms, hurricanes down in the south. These are the natural forces that we deal with here in the great state. And many of you remember just a few years back, uh, a series of hailstorms that came through this area, and they were absolutely destructive. Hailstones the size of golf balls, even the size of tennis balls, right? They just rained down on our cars and on our homes and on our businesses, and there, there was nothing that we could do except cover our heads and just ride it out. We're completely powerless against these natural weather phenomena. By the way, the, the largest recorded hailstone, according to NOAA, the National Oceanic Atmospheric Administration, the largest recorded hailstone was from 2010 in Vivian, South Dakota. It was eight inches across. It was the size of a football, and it weighed two pounds. So we all know about the devastation of these meteorological forces. We know what it can do in a short period of time. And, and we all obviously know and should be concerned about those who are affected by these natural phenomena. The carnage that they bring is almost unimaginable and at the same time absolutely devastating. And we know that something is wrong when these things are happening. I mean, we, we know instinctively, we believe that the ground beneath our feet is supposed to be stable. It's not supposed to shake and cause everything to fall down. We know or we believe that ice the size of baseballs is not supposed to fall from the sky. And yet it does. And when these things happen, we are reminded just how helpless we truly are against these forces of nature that we cannot control. Well, here in this final vision of the bowls of God's wrath, we see the destructive nature of these kind of events. In this particular case, we see God's judgment being poured out on the unbelieving world, and the picture that is painted is of the greatest earthquake the earth has ever seen, as well as lightning and thunder and hail this, that's 100 pounds, these hail the size of boulders. This is unimaginable. 
But what we see happening in this particular passage is we see the, the throne of heaven invading the realm of earth. God is coming and bringing final judgment upon the world. That's the picture that we see in this final bowl of God's wrath. This vision marks the end of days, the end of all things. And we know this because the voice coming from the throne of God declares, it is done. So we've come a long way in our study of the Revelation. And we've seen these scenes before. We've seen them in part. We've seen them on a smaller scale. Well, this one is complete. This one is the fullness of God's wrath. And we're going to look at it in three parts. The first thing we're going to see this morning is this declaration from the throne of God that it is done. So let's look back at verse 17, and we'll try to understand that a little more fully. The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne saying, it is done. Now the it here is a reference to God's program of judgment. This seventh bowl declares and describes the final destruction of this sinful and corrupted world system. Now a few weeks ago, when we first started to study these bowls, I pointed out that, that God's program of judgment is the language that I'm using to describe what we see here. And what we see here is a systematic pouring out of God's wrath upon every single aspect of creation. There is not a corner of the created universe that will not experience the just anger of God. Because there is not a corner of the universe that has not been in some way affected by sin. That's our understanding. That program began with God pouring his judgment into the earth and then it affected all of humanity. He poured his judgment into the sea, which again affected all of humanity as well as all of the created life in the sea. And then he poured out his wrath onto the fresh water, which had its effect. And then he poured out his wrath onto the sun, right? Y'all remember that progression. And then the fifth bowl of God's wrath took took aim at the throne of the beast, and the throne of the beast was thrown into darkness. And, and we were told that all of the kingdom of the world, all of the kingdom of this unbelieving world was going to be thrown into darkness. And then the sixth bowl declared war. We saw that just last week. And here the seventh bowl rounds out the scope of God's judgment by pouring his wrath into the air. Not even the breath we breathe is safe from the, ang- the anger of God. But why the air? What has the air done to deserve the wrath of God? What is the point of God's wrath being poured into the air? Well, it's actually, it's actually quite a debated subject. Everything in the Revelation is a debated subject, to be quite honest with you. In this one, I think there's at least two categories of understanding what's happening here. And I don't believe it's, it's one or the other. I think it's a both-and scenario. First of all, I, I think that what we're seeing here is that this pouring out of God's wrath into the air is just rounding out God's judgment. It's completing the scope of what God is doing in judging the world. It's showing us that every corner of God's wrath is going to experience this from the earth to the air to the sky, right? From the sea to the rivers, from the sinful kingdom to the nations that populate this wicked world, all have now experienced the wrath of God. And that, there's a sense in which we're supposed to see that as the air is even affected. But there's another sense in which we should understand this. The second option is that the air is actually a reference to the domain of Satan. 
Biblical cosmology identifies the air as the realm of Satan's evil dominion. And I'll give you a couple of passages of Scripture to help you understand that. In Ephesians chapter 2, as the Apostle Paul describes to us our wicked state apart from Christ, he tells us that we are dead in our trespasses and sins, and he tells us that we were, were dead, and we were even though we were spiritually dead, we were physically walking according to the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. We would understand this to be a reference to Satan himself. And Paul, under the inspiration of the Spirit of God, is saying he is the prince ruling over the power of the air. There's a reference to his dominion. A little bit later in the book of Ephesians, in Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 12, as the Apostle Paul tells us about the, the spiritual battle that we fight, that the warfare that we fight on a day-to-day basis, he says we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers and authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. That phrase, heavenly places, is yet again another example of this domain of Satan being referenced as the air. And so when you put those two things together, what this final bowl of wrath is to help us understand is that this final bowl shows that there is no corner of creation that can hide from God's fierce anger. And it also shows that Satan's dominion will be the final realm to fall. This bowl completes the program. And God acknowledges this with the fact that it is done. That language is emphatic in the text. And it's important in helping us understand something. Let me give you a a comparison here. Do you remember when Jesus was on the cross? After he had lived the life that he had been called to live, that obedient life to the Father, and then he had undergone this unjust trial and then succumbed to death on a cross through his own humility. When he was on the cross, he had a few conversations there with John and then with the others hanging beside him. But at the end, right before he breathed out his last and gave up his spirit, what did he say? He said, it is finished. Now we know, because we understand the gospel is the good news of Jesus' life, death, burial, and then resurrection, we know that there's still more to come. But the consummation of Christ's purpose was complete. It was done. It was finished. And he gave up his spirit yielding himself to the, to the Father's purpose. Jesus said on the cross, it is done. And here, at the end of the judgment of God, God says, it is done. That's what this language means. That's what God is declaring. Jesus completed the work of redemption in his death on the cross, and God the Father has completed his work of judgment in this seventh bowl, and he declares, it is done. The same idea. The full consummation of God's plan is complete. And we've seen this. The wicked have been destroyed. The old world, the old order of creation has been demolished. And we would understand that the people of God have been gathered in. And we know that because the end has finally come. And there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. So that's what we see happening in this particular bowl. And I'll use a different I'll use different terminology, and we'll, I'll tell you why in just a second. What we see here is we see heaven invading earth. And we see that taking place in verse 18. Look at verse 18 with me. 
the, the angel has poured out his bowl, God has declared it is done, and there were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a great earthquake, such as there had never been since man was on earth. So great was that earthquake. Now, if, you're, if, if you haven't been here very long with us, I, I'm going to mention some things that we've seen over and over and over again. This language of lightning and thunder and a great earthquake, we've actually seen it multiple times as we've been studying the Revelation. I've been teaching the Revelation as a series of seven different visions, all telling the same story from different angles. It's telling the story of the age of the church, that time between Christ's first coming and Christ's second coming. And as we've studied this, we've come through that cycle And we've come to the end multiple times, and we've seen it over and over and over again. And one of the reasons we know we've come to the end is that we see this very thing happening. We see God invading earth. That's a weird way to say it. God doesn't invade earth. We talk about invading, like if if aliens were to invade our space, we think of the earth as ours. But God doesn't invade necessarily. It's his. He's just coming into his creation. But we would see it as an invasion. But in that moment when the the scriptures tell us that the sky will be rolled back as a scroll and our Savior will come in the fullness of his revealed presence and glory, this is what's going to happen. And we've seen this not only in the New Testament, also in the Old Testament, but in the Revelation, we've seen this scene of God's throne being revealed to those on earth accompanied by lightning and thunder and an earthquake. We saw it in chapter 6 and verse 12. As the sixth seal was opened by Christ, the throne of God was revealed, and this is what we saw happen. In chapter 8 and verse 5, as the seventh seal came to its conclusion, that same vision of the throne of God invading earth, if you will, was, was still taking place, and we saw lightning and thunder and the earthquake again. In chapter 11 and verse 13, as well as in verse 19, the temple in heaven was opened And as the temple in heaven was opened, we saw thunder and we saw lightning and we saw an earthquake dominating the scene. And in each of those passages, what happens was we had come to the end of that particular cycle, that particular series of visions. We'd come to the end of it. And after God has, he had poured out his judgment upon the unbelieving world, he had gathered in the church, then he comes in his fullness and he overwhelms the world. That's what we understand is going to happen in the end, and we've already seen it multiple times, and we're seeing it here again. The cycle of visions has come to an end, and God is coming to earth. Now, why do I say that this is, this is common for, for us to understand when God comes to earth? Well, you, you may not have read it recently, maybe you have, but back in the Exodus account, you remember the story of the Exodus, right? God hears the cries of his people. They're in slavery in Egypt, and their slavery has gotten more and more harsh, and they they cry out to the Lord, and God moves on their behalf. He remembers the covenant that he had made to their fathers, and and God begins to move. He sends Moses into that area to, to be the spokesman for God. And he begins to work to release them from their slavery. And he does that on the the night of Passover by covering them by the blood of the lamb, right? Ultimately, they were delivered by the blood of the lamb. And they become a, a, a people covered by the blood as they go out into the wilderness and God fights for them. Well, when they go out into the wilderness, before they get to the promised land, they come to the, the base of a mountain. They come to the base of Mount Sinai. And it's on Mount Sinai that God is going to give them his law, his Ten Commandments 
which is interesting in the scope of how the scriptures unfold. God makes the Israel, his people, covered by the blood, and then he takes them out and gives them his law. Did y'all know that the law of God was never meant to save us? The law of God is teaching us how to live as the blood-bought people of God. It was never intended to save us. But when God gets them to the mountain, he, he pulls them back. He tells them they are to consecrate themselves. And then the day finally comes, and what happens? God comes down. His throne invaded earth way back in the Exodus account. And guess what happened when that, when that occurred? There was lightning and thunder, and the earth shook, and the people saw it, and when God would speak, the earth would shake, and they were so afraid of it that they said to Moses, please tell God to stop talking. You talk to us. We're so afraid of his voice. And that was a picture. Actually, it was the first picture we have of God's throne invading the earth, and all of that scene of the lightning and the thunder and the earthquake dominated that. And what John is doing is the exact same thing. When God comes to earth, this is what occurs. The, the meteorological and the earthly phenomena signal the fact that God is invading the earthly sphere. The power of heaven is invading the created world. The supernatural God is invading the natural order and the impact of the collision of these two realms is so amazing that there's, there's this exchange of power and the earth and the atmosphere just begins to erupt. And the foundations of the earth begin to buckle under the weight of the glory of God's coming. That's what we're seeing here. And John tells us that on that day, there's going to be an earthquake unlike anything the world has ever seen. Now, this imagery is not only is it accustomed to, is akin to God's revealing himself, but God even said, back in the Exodus, he said to, to Pharaoh through Moses, he says, you're going to see things that this world has never seen. In fact, in, in Exodus chapter 9 and verse 18, God speaks to Moses. Moses says to Pharaoh, this time tomorrow I will cause heavy hail to fall, such as had never been in Egypt from the day it was founded until now. And John is using that same language here. He says, you're going to see an earthquake such as has never been seen in the earth. Again, the language of those two ideas are coming together. And this final judgment is going to be like, unlike anything the world has ever seen. And that says, that's saying a lot. Consider, just for a moment, the kind of devastating natural phenomenon, if you will, that this world has experienced. Think all the way back to the beginning of the book. I mean, in Genesis 6, this, this earth that we stand on made it through a worldwide and cataclysmic and judgmental flood. And then after that, we would understand that this world experienced an, an ice age. And then later on, we know that there was a particular time in the life of God's people where God stopped the rotation of the earth and made the sun stand still so that the, the forces of Israel could defeat their enemies. I mean, this earth has sustained incredible things. I mentioned earlier some of the things that we experience here in Texas, those earthquakes and volcanoes and hurricanes and tsunamis, and all of these things have shaped the world that we know. But when the final bowl of wrath is poured out, this earth will be shaken like it has never been shaken before. And this earthquake will be unmatched in intensity. Intensity. 
Because the people still alive on that day will see God coming into the world. Now there have been people that have actually seen that as well. The the Bible records for us some of the events where individual men were allowed to see a glimpse of heaven, if you will. You remember Jacob? Back when Jacob was trying to figure out what he's going to do with his life, he was an existential crisis, and he's out in the middle of the wilderness, and he lays down to take a nap, and as he does, God gives him a vision, and God comforts him with the vision of the stairway to heaven. You remember that story. Later on, we know that the prophets actually saw visions of the throne of God. Isaiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, they saw the throne of God and and just the vision, the sheer sight of it made them fall down as though they were dead. They assumed that their life was over. Peter, James, and John, you remember, they got to see some pretty amazing stuff. They got to see the transfiguration when, when Jesus pulled back the veil and showed something of his glory. And they did the same thing. They hit their knees and they tried to worship in only the way that they knew how. And even then they were rebuked by Jesus. You remember the story of Stephen, first Christian martyr in the book of Acts. Stephen, while he was being stoned to death, was allowed to see a vision of heaven, and in that vision, he saw Christ standing at the right hand of the Father. And in all of these visions, the men that experienced them felt like their whole existence was coming undone. That was the language of Isaiah. I am, I am a man of unclean lips. But before he said, I'm a man of unclean lips and confessed his sin, he says, I am undone. I am coming apart at the seams. And in those visions, God was not coming to judge those men. He was coming to comfort those men. He was coming to reveal something to those men. Okay. Here in the Revelation, John tells us, And when God comes in this instance, it will not be to comfort, it will be to judge. Try to imagine, if it's possible, what it will be like when God comes in the fullness of his anger, such that this world will shake as it's never been shaken before, such that the foundations of the earth will begin to unravel, not just you, but the foundations of the earth will begin to unravel on that day we will experience, or this world will experience, judgment like never before, hence the title of the sermon. That's what the seventh bowl of wrath is all about. But notice in the text that all of this is happening. This, God is judging this particular portion of the creation, and, and God is coming into the earth, and, and the earth is responding to his presence, but there is a central focus of the wrath of God and it is upon this great city that we call Babylon. Look back at verse 19. It says, The great city was split into three parts and the cities of the nations fell. Don't don't lose sight of that. The, The great city Babylon is torn into three parts, but the cities of the nations will also fall. And God remembered Babylon the great to make her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath. And then all the islands fled away and there were no mountains to be found. And great hailstones, about 100 pounds each, fell from heaven on people. And they cursed God for the plague of the hail because the plague was so severe. The focal point of God's judgment in this particular case is the city of Babylon, but not just the city of Babylon, all the cities of the nations. And what is that all about? How do we understand that? Well, before we get to that question, let's be sure and understand something. It's not just a city that God is angry about. God's judgment is being poured out upon sin. 
The combined sin of Satan and mankind has brought this response from God. You remember all the way back to the beginning, in the garden, it was Satan who tempted Adam and Eve, and they both gave in to that temptation, and they fell out of their relationship to God because of their rebellion against the commands of God. And we would understand sin to be the breaking of God's commands. It is a defiance of God's word. They listened to the serpent and they followed him into sin. And now, according to the scriptures, all of the world and every human being has been corrupted by sin. And our kids could probably answer this question. What is sin? Sin is any transgression of the law of God. We sin against God by doing what he commands us not to do. And we sin against God by not doing what he commands us to do. And our sin is revealed in our actions, but the root of our sin is found deep inside every human heart. In Genesis chapter 6 and verse 5, as the Lord looks out upon the world fallen into sin, he says this, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thought of his heart was only evil continually. John Piper offers a helpful definition of sin. He says this, and this is a quote, any feeling or thought or speech or action that comes from a heart that does not treasure God over all other things. The root of sin in us is a heart that is selfish and rebellious and does not treasure God the way he deserves to be treasured. Piper goes on, he says, and the bottom of sin, the root of all sinning, is such a heart, a heart that prefers anything above God, a heart that does not treasure God over all other persons and all other things. He goes on and he defines sin in this way, and I think it's powerful, so I'll share it with you. He says, what is sin? Sin is this, it is the glory of God not honored. It's the holiness of God not reverenced. It's the greatness of God not admired. It's the power of God not praised. It's the truth of God not sought. It's the wisdom of God not esteemed. The beauty of God not treasured. The goodness of God not savored. The faithfulness of God not trusted. The promises of God not believed. The commandments of God not obeyed. The justice of God not respected. The wrath of God not feared. The grace of God not cherished. The presence of God not prized. And the person of God not loved. When God is disregarded or disbelieved or disobeyed or dishonored and thus belittled by millions and millions of people in the world, that is sin. And God's judgment is being poured out against all of that. This great earthquake is so powerful that it splits the city of Babylon into three parts. And just so you know, if it's split into three, the idea is it's split completely. It can't be put back together at that point. That's the biblical euphemism, the language that's being used there. And the wrath of God that splits Babylon into three is the, the holy response of God to the sin of the world. But why is it a city? Why is, it, why is the focal point a city? And not just the city of Babylon, but all the cities of the world. This is the reference is to the city of sin. It's almost as though you see the city as this hub of demonic activity and influence in the world. The earth has seen the destruction of cities before, right? You remember Babel all the way back in the, in the book of Genesis, 
when the nations came together, when all the peoples came together and they wanted to build a monument to themselves. And it was so powerful and so amazing that God had to look down to see it. There's irony in that story. We built something so great that God had to come down just to see it. And when he destroyed it, we would understand that he was destroying not just the city, but he was destroying something that was holding the city together, that rebelliousness of humanity that wants to put itself in the place of God. That's what these cities represent. Sodom and Gomorrah was another example of that. Cities that wanted to take the truth of God revealed in nature and to corrupt it. And God destroyed that city. The city of Jericho, God destroyed that city as well. But these are all small in comparison to the destruction of Babylon the Great, as we see here in the text. By the way, I know I mentioned this last week. And I try to mention this along the way. You may have a different interpretation of the Revelation. You may see it differently than I've been teaching it. That's fine. There are many different interpretations that fall within the bounds of orthodoxy. But when I see the city of Babylon here, it's not a reference to the literal city of Babylon. By the way, the city of Babylon was destroyed long ago. And some would believe that God is going to restore that city and it's going to have this demonic element to it. Some just believe it's figurative. I believe that it is figurative. It's symbolic. And I believe that because of what God has actually said about the city. God said when he destroyed the city that he was never going to allow another human to habitate that city ever again. In Jeremiah chapter 50 verse 39, God says, Therefore wild beasts shall dwell with hyenas in Babylon. In other words, not humans. Ostriches shall dwell in her. She shall never again have people nor be inhabited for all generations. As when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah and the neighboring cities, declares the Lord, so man shall not dwell there. No son of man shall sojourn sojourn in her. So God is saying Babylon, the actual Babylon, is going to be like Sodom and Gomorrah, destroyed, never to rise again. So Babylon's not going to rise again. In Isaiah 13, we see the same thing. So what we understand is that John is using Babylon in a symbolic way. He is saying essentially this, that Babylon is representative of the wicked world order that stands against God and against his Christ. He also mentions Babylon in some weird ways that just makes it clear to us that it's symbolic. Throughout the Revelation, he talks about Babylon as the city where the Lord was crucified in Revelation 11.8. But we know where the Lord was crucified. He was crucified on Calvary outside of Jerusalem, right? He wasn't crucified in Babylon, but Babylon is symbolic. It's a representative of that that human element that stands against Christ. He says that Babylon is the city that seduced the nations, Revelation 14.8. He says that Babylon is the city where God's witnesses were slain, and that's in Revelation 17.4. All of that to say, Babylon represents the symbolic, unbelieving world in its hatred of Christ and its persecution of Christians. And when the final earthquake strikes, the city will fall. Ultimately, the unbelieving world will be torn apart. That's what it's saying. Think of the great cities of our day. Beijing, New York, Mumbai, Sao Paulo, Mexico City, London, Los Angeles, so many more. In John's day, it was Rome. And many commentators would understand, as John is writing this, that when he uses the word Babylon, he's got Rome in mind. Or Jerusalem. Cities like this, they've been dotted across our planet for 
millennia. And they have certain things in common. They're centers of human trade. They're, they provide opportunities for financial success. They, they're also sources of influence for all of the rest of the world. These cities serve as hubs where the world's politics and the world's culture and the world's economics and the world's art and social life are disseminated. And so when John uses the word Babylon here, he's not referring to just one city. He's referring to all cities, all the cities of the world that have rejected God and have rejected his word as the foundation for their being and their existence. Babylon, in essence, is symbolic of the evil world system. And each of these great centers of godless influence are part of that system. And when the end comes, John is telling us that they will all be broken and destroyed. The centers of human habitation where God is mocked and rejected, they will be undone. Babylon will drain the cup of the wine of the fury of God's wrath. What is that all about? Throughout the Old Testament and even into the New, the the idea of God's judgment is pictured as a wine, a cup of wine. And Well, if you've had a cup of wine, you, you might understand this. If you were to drain a cup of wine... It's already in your system, and it's going to have an effect upon you, and those effects are often visible. The alcohol rushes into the body. It produces something of a shock to the system, and it can influence all kinds of things, like your speech and your ability to think, and they'll even challenge your equilibrium if you've had too much. That's the point here. The picture John is using is that God is going to force them to drink the cup. And it will have its effect. They will begin to stagger. But there's nothing they can do about it at this point because they've already drained the cup. It's already in them. They can't, they can't get away from it. Psalm 75 verse 8 says, For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine well mixed, and he pours out from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it to the dregs. John is using that Old Testament language, and he's saying this is what it's going to be like. This is how he describes the judgment of God on the wicked. And then the islands and the mountains will flee. In other words, all of the earth will be undone. Hailstones as large as boulders. Can't even imagine that, but they're going to fall from the sky. Everything on earth will be changed in an instant. The earth will be transformed. But notice at the end of this that the wicked, in experiencing this judgment, will still remain defiant. When God's curse, which they deserve, finally falls, they will still shake their fist in defiance of God. That's the picture. And that lets us know that the revelation is not over. And you didn't need me to tell you that because, you know, that's verse 17 or chapter 17 is right there. We're going to continue to study it. But how do we summarize all of this? There's, There's no command here. It's just a picture. It's just a vision. How do we respond to this? What do we take away from this? The final bowl of wrath gives us a glimpse of the end of the world as we know it. And the rest of Scripture helps us to understand that we should live today with the understanding that that day is closer now than it's ever been. Romans chapter 13 says, You know the time. You know that the hour has come for you to wake up from your sleep because our salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The writer of Hebrews also tries to help us prepare for that day when he says this, and this is very reminiscent of what we see here in this vision of the seventh bowl. He says, 
God has promised, this is from Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 26, God has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. And this phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, the things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. When God comes, he's going to shake this earth. But there is something that cannot be shaken. And the writer of Hebrews goes on and he says, Therefore let us, he's talking to believers, let us be grateful because we have received a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And let us therefore offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe because our God is a consuming fire. God is going to shake this world. That day is coming when his judgment is poured out upon sin. But there is a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And that kingdom is the kingdom of Christ. And to be a citizen of his kingdom, you must turn from your sin and receive Jesus Christ as Savior, Lord, and King. And friend, if you are not a believer, and the Bible would have you understand that your sin remains on your shoulders, and the wrath of God is going to be poured out upon your sin This passage makes clear that that day is coming. And when God's punishment is poured out, if you're not a believer in Christ, if you're not taking refuge beneath Him, you will bear the weight of that wrath yourself. And there is only one escape. There is only one rescue from the wrath of God that our sin deserves, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus came to earth on a mission. That mission was to live the sinless life that we can't live on our own because we're sinners. And that mission took him to the cross. It was his purpose to die in the place of his people so that in doing so, he would pour out his blood to atone for the sins of all those who believe. And then God put his stamp of approval on Christ's action by raising him from the dead, declaring everything that is necessary to save my people from my wrath and their sin has been accomplished by my son. And then the the call for the people of God to go throughout the world and to proclaim the gospel, to say to men and women like you that you are a sinner that must answer to a holy God and yet in his love God has made a way for you to avoid his wrath. God has made a way for you to come underneath his umbrella of protection and it is only by faith in what his son has done. The only rescue from the father is to take refuge in the son. And so friend, if you are here and you're not a believer in Christ, your only hope is to turn from your sin, to turn from that, the way that you've lived your life according to the sinful desires of your heart. And in turning, you turn to Christ and you receive him unto yourself. All that he is and all that he has accomplished. Repent and believe. That's our only hope. And if you want to talk more about that, I stand ready after the service to talk to you. I'd love to share the gospel with you more fully. But if you are a member of that unshakable kingdom, the writer of Hebrews tells us here, you should be grateful. We should be grateful. As we understand what the wrath of God is going to look like, we should be grateful that we're not going to suffer under that wrath, but we're going to be rescued from it because we have inherited a kingdom that we don't deserve. And it is a kingdom that cannot be shaken. You didn't earn it. You never could. But by the merciful kindness of God, you have been forgiven. Be grateful to Christ and offer to him the worship and praise that he is due. So let's prepare our hearts to do that now.
Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for this picture. It is a challenging vision to see, but it, it tells us what we need to know. You have revealed these things to us. So let us respond appropriately. I pray for those here who don't know you, that you would move in their hearts to, to show them the weight of their sin and that they would find their hope in Christ alone. I pray for those who are here who do know you, that we would be grateful immensely grateful, and that the joy of salvation would well up in our hearts as we respond now to this message in singing your praises. You deserve them all. Have your way with us. Whatever you accomplish, it is for your glory. And I pray in Jesus' name, amen.